Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cody's Car Conundrum. I'm your host, Cody Wagner. No duh, right? Here we discuss everything from car news, culture, movies, stories, games, interviews, events, and so much more. Without further delay, on with the show. Hey, hey, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. Today, for the Sunday special, we are reading another article from Road & Track. The title is The New Face of Vintage Racing. And the article was written by Jack Baruth, and it features a Dodge Neon ACR from the 90s. So that title, that headline might be really confusing given the subject matter. So let's read the article and see why he thinks it is that Neon ACR is the new face of vintage racing. When the organization that would eventually become known as the Sports Car Vintage Racing Association, or SVRA, held the Kendall Vintage Grand Prix at Sebring in 1978, the definition of vintage racer was simple. Any competition automobile with at least six birthdays under its belt. The Sebring event focused on cars that completed, sorry, no, that competed during the 1960 and 1972 period, and its success gave a solid kick to the start of the American vintage racing hobby. As L.P. Hartley wrote, the past is a foreign country, and they do things differently there. The notion of a six-year-old car being vintage seems absurd in an era where the most common duration for a new car loan is, in fact, six years. It is tempting to see our ancestors and predecessors as living fruit fly lives between wars and social upheavals, trapped at the same time in the pre-internet amber, amber? Okay. of communications by post and news delivery via paperboy. Many people bought a new car every year without fail as they waited a month or longer for deliveries from the Sears Roebuck catalog. They expected the future to surpass the present. Old cars, old clothes, Old books? Worthless. Who would want a 1952 Chevrolet after the 1958 became available? And their definition of old could verge on pitiless. When Eric Clapton played a Le, Le Paul on the, or Les Paul, on the Blues Breakers record and inadvertently started the vintage guitar craze, the instrument in question had been built just six years prior. In that context, the idea of a 1972 Corvette competing in a 1978 vintage Grand Prix seems less heretical. As is usually the case in these situations, there's more to the story. The Kendall Group, which incorporated formally as SVRA in 1980, set, the, set that 1960-1972 time frame because the preeminent historic racing group of the time, the Vintage Sports Car Club of America, would not permit any vehicle built past 1959 to enter its events. The VSCCA, in turn, had been formed in 19, no, had been founded in 1958 as a reaction against that it called the confusion of more modern vehicles among the SCCA proper. In its early years, the VSCCA limited participation to pre-World War II vehicles, but by 1978, it had daringly turned the clock forward to 1959. In doing so, the club set an expectation that would end up curling around the heart of the vintage racing hobby. Namely, that the definition of vintage car would periodically advance with the times. That the brand new MG parked in the lot of a 50s-era VSCCA meeting could, in time, become a vintage car itself. Sometimes, of course, this, this expectation is actually fulfilled. A quick review of, ar of archival footage from the 1973 Watkins Glen Grand Prix shows a 20-year-old Jaguar D-Type leading the pack. A quarter century later, the 1999 Zippo U.S. Vintage Grand Prix at the same venue featured a Porsche 935 built in 1977. For the bulk of the vintage racing organizations both here and overseas, however, the calendar pages have simply stopped 
falling. Eight of the SVRA's 12 current race groups are essentially limited to cars that are at least 40 years old. The VSCCA long ago decided to halt the march of time at December 31st, 1965. If you want to compete in a lovely and evocative put-in-bay sports car race this year, you'll need to find a pre-1973 car, which means you'll be working with the same eligibility requirements faced by a would-be Kendall Vintage entrant during the Carter administration, plus four decades worth of rust, corrosion, chassis degradation, and spare parts discontinuation. This is vintage, as defined by the baby boomer crowd, a deliberate clock-stopping very similar to the manner in which many classic rock radio stations have steadfastly refused to admit Johnny-come-lately efforts such as Guns N' Roses, 1986, or Jane's Addiction, 1985, to their canon. Which is not to say there's no way to drive a newer car at your favorite historic event, at least if you're wealthy. You won't see it mentioned on the promotional papers on the front page of the websites, but in the past decade, there's been a Soto Voce explosion, hopefully I got that right, of astoundingly upscale modern era competition in the vintage racing world. Peter Krauss, hopefully I got that right, a vintage racing champion and data analyst guru who provides private instruction to the track day jet set, offers some perspective on the matter. There was a bewildering array of eligibility on the sharp end. The international GT series with the current 991 GT3R Porsches, Audi RA LMS, and Ferrari 458 Challenge, as well as stock cars and V8 production cars regularly driven by stars such as Bill Elliott and Ray Irvingham. Hopefully I got that last name right. You'd struggle to consider many of these cars vintage by any means, even by the Kendall six-year guideline, but they are starting to make up a substantial portion of the grids and the profits on both coasts. And, Cross continues, you have historic sports car racing's wonderful Classic 24 at Daytona and Classic 12 at Sebring, showing off sleek Daytona prototypes, near-current LMP1 cars, and a pit lane full of professionals preparing and looking after these rocket ships. Oh yes, this is not your father's vintage racing. This is the state of historic competition in 2019. On the left hand, you have the people who would prefer to keep their eligibility time frame static, in the same way that the Society for Creative Anachronism has not expanded its focus to include the 17th century in the 53 years since its founding. On the right hand, you have vintage, air quotes, racing as the preferred outlet for the hyper-wealthy to exercise recently decommissioned frontline factory race cars at staggering cost. Frankly, historic racing is now and has been for many years as competitive as any form of road racing, Krauss notes. The transition of professional teams and mechanics in professional series looking after wealthy aficionados, the consumption of many, set, of many sets of tires, employing top-of-the-line engine builders, coaches, and technology to find every advantage, it's just part of the way vintage racing and historic racing has changed. Clearly, this is a big tent, but it's not, but it's really only big enough to cover two of the three cars assembled at NCM Motorsports Park this morning. All eyes and ears are on the bloodthirsty, flared fender monster rumbling out of the first pit garage. This 73 Corvette appears ready to murder anything that might wander in front of it. It did, in fact, kill the runoff dreams of one P.L. Newman in the 1982 SCCA GT1 National Championship, driven and campaigned by Doug, I can't figure out how to say your last name, last name, I'm really sorry. The Corvette took the SCCA crown in both 1981 and 1982, 
twisting out 390 horsepower and effortlessly whipping the Datsuns and Triumphs lined up against it. After retiring from club racing, the Corvette was sold to Leon Hurd, who ran it with the SBR Ray through the 90s before donating it to the National Corvette Museum in 2005. You can stop by and see it there, even at rest the big roadster radiates menace. Every so often, the museum chooses to exercise it a bit, and that's why it is vibrating the pavement on a 23 degree Kentucky morning, effortlessly vaporizing its old Hoosier slicks the minute the clutch comes out. This 73 Corvette is, if you will pardon the awkwardness of the phrasing, the very definition of a modern vintage car. There's a bit of irony in the fact that it would, that it would have been eligible for SVRA events a few years before it won the runoffs, but a truly cultivated historic racer would consider that just we consider that just the icing on the cake. One can easily imagine the big yellow Chevy ripping up the hill like Goodwood or falling down the course through at the Monterey Historics, yet it's unlikely to ever leave the museum again for more than the spot of occasional exercise. The Lane Motor Museum in Nashville might fairly be said to, in to incorporate both garage and museum, having begun life as Jeff Lane's personal collection before opening to the public. His contribution to our little get-together is the 1963 H-Mod BMW Schirdlou. Wow. Fabricated from bare stock by Howard Bliss for designer and racer Frazier Sibald. Hopefully I got that right. The little sports car uses a bored-out 750 Boxer Twin from a contemporaneous BMW 700 sports coupe. It finished fifth in the 1966 runoffs, and now travels to vintage events on both coasts. With 80 horsepower to rapidly motivate a dry weight of 635 pounds, the sheared loop, taken from the nonsense words used by typesetters to limber up at the beginning of a shift, is infamous for being underbraked. It seems to shiver in the Corvette's shadow, a ballet dancer accompanied by a gorilla. It's also famously fussy, so, so much so that Lane has sent along a driver who knows its foibles. Despite this, and even after considerable fettling, the Shirdlu still manages to eat its clutch just half an hour after the day starts. We push it into life from then on. As national-level competitors with impeccable pedigrees, the Corvette and Shirdlu would be welcome almost anywhere. The Shirdlu could even make the current cut for VSCCA. Yet neither of them can claim three SCCA national championships in a row nor were they ever part of a pro series that opened for IndyCar across the country. Those distinctions are reserved for the third car in our test, sitting tall and awkward outside the pit garage on non-adjustable Arvin struts, vibrating faintly with the indifferently balanced oscillations of its 2-liter single-cam 16-valve engine. The Dodge Neon ACR is a most unlikely overdog, or perhaps it only seems that way, if you can't put it in the proper <clears throat> historic context. With 132 horsepower and a wickedly aerodynamic shape, it made mincemeat of the showroom stock competition. And that was before a skunk works full of racing crazed Chrysler, Chrysler engineers started to enhance the car's performance on track. A single make pro series, the Neon Challenge, attracted everyone from Bob Lutz to ZZ Top's Frank Beard. An entire generation of young Mopar fanatics grew up learning the subtle cheats and tricks possible with the car, putting the pistons from the 1995 twin cam model into a single cam 1994 car, for example, raised the compression just over half a point 
and made the most of the high-octane fuel. Thirteen years after its introduction, the Neon was still winning was still winning improved touring races in the SCCA despite being penalized with a 200-pound weight disadvantage over the higher-power, shorter-wheelbase Sentra SER. In 2007, when Ford put a significant amount of money and effort into creating the Spec Focus, the spec focus class in NASA, a group of retrobates from Detroit brought their neons down to mid-Ohio for the national championships and put the, four, and put the poor focused drivers back on their trailer despite a 300cc disadvantage and the lack of functional ABS. You can still find Neons competing all over America, from the crazy compact class at your local circle track to SCCA Super Tour events. Here, however, is where you won't find them, at a local vintage race. In preparation for this article, I contacted a few historic organizations regarding the possibility of entering my SCCA 1995 Plymouth Neon into their events. The most accommodating response? Get a fuel cell into it and we'll discuss if there's room for it somewhere at some point. The most common response? We don't anticipate having a place for your car now or in the future. And I could see their point. My Neon's lap time around mid-Ohio would put it at the head, would, yeah, would put it at, at the head of about half of the current SVRA race groups. Only in the wing formula and modern GT classes would it be any farther than halfway down the field. Imagine this. You're running your 1965 small block Corvette through mid-Ohio's Thunder Valley. The engine burbling mightily. The crowd admiring your period-correct your period correct livery and 95-point restoration. When you look in the mirror and see a Plymouth Neon? And you have to move over for this ancient economy car? Absolutely preposterous, but that's precisely what the data indicates. My Neon is a bit of a ringer, making 165 horses at the front wheels and featuring long stack of dime welds along every body seam. The same advances in tire suspension and computerized engine management technology that let, cus that let customer-owned F1 cars from the 90s break lap records also permit my Neon to run five seconds a lap faster than it did in 1994. For the purposes of this test, I had to find a proper vintage spec Neon. Enter SCCA veteran Phil. Again, I'm really sorry. I can't figure out how to say your last name. Now enjoying his 80-second spin around the sun, he bought the Dodge Neon ACR you see on these pages a full 25, 25 years ago just a few months after it was built. In February of 1994, at that time, you couldn't buy an ACR without an active SCCA race license. That is crazy. That, imagine not being able to buy a car because you're basically not a racing driver. What? Like, that's what, Ferrari, that's what Ford did with the GT saying, oh, well, you know, you have to be selected for this. Oh, you're not some cool person? Nah, you can't get it for GT. I mean, that's what Ferrari, that's what Ferrari did with the Enzo back in 2000. Not with the SCCA race license, but basically saying, hey, if you don't meet our qualifications, you can't have it. Deal with it. That's really interesting. I mean, I don't even think that was the case for the Viper ACR. I mean, you, as far as I know, you didn't need an active SCCA race license to get a Viper ACR, yet you needed one for a Neon ACR? Wow. Man, that is some, that is some requirement. But Phil had that race license. He raced it in showroom stock and improved touring for the better part of two decades before retiring it to commuter duty. The cage is an old Kirk Bolton, sufficient for the SVRA, 
but absolutely illegal. Even for the 24 hours of lemons. The engine is a 72,000 mile original and, and the transmission is as well. It'll be fine for track work, he told me, until something goes wrong. Sure enough, the Dodge fires right up and is ready to go immediately. I thought it was a Plymouth. Oh, wait, no, his is a Dodge. Okay. I've brought a crew of Mopar experts to help me, just like the NCM and Lane Museum folks. But by the time the vet and BMW are ready to run, I've already driven two dozen laps with nothing other than a quick torquing of the wheels. The Corvette is stalling at all speeds below 50 miles per hour. The bespoke Beamer has sprung at least two leaks, but the Neon requires no help. It feels like cheating. And while the other drivers suffer the twin extremes of heat from uninsulated drivetrains and cold from open cockpits, I'm sipping around with a function sorry, with the functional heater cranked. After 25 years, it's still easy to tell that the Mopar engineers got it right from got it right the first time. This car is a delight to drive. Diving from apex on fingertip light steering, then flinging the back end out with a gentle lift of the throttle. It's so much fun that I wind up trashing the rear wheel bearings. Always a weak link in the neons. In the course of doing two dozen consecutive drift shots for photographer Dave Burden. If you had unlimited money and resources, you wouldn't bother to run a 1994 neon in any vintage class. You'd go straight for something like the Corvette or the Sheared Lou. Something that looks special, makes the right noises, and offers the right amount of credibility in the paddock and in the post-race dinners. Yet this old sedan is just as much of a joy to run hard as any tin top racer. Enough so that I wound up buying it from Phil after the test for a considerable sum of $1,500, including two spare wheel sets, a box of parts, and some antiquated Hoosier R6 tires. There won't be any place to run it, not as it sits. The same SVRA that accepted six-year-old Corvettes isn't all that interested in my 25-year-old Dodge. When they came to mid-Ohio this June, I'll be on the sidelines. One driver who won't be sitting next to me in the grass, fellow Midwesterner Malcolm Ross, who will be entering his 1989 X-Mansell, or Mansell, whatever, Ferrari 640 F1 car in the winged formula category. I'm not bringing my ego, he tells me, as we examine his pristine V12 Ferrari and its first-in-the-sport electronic paddle shifters. SVRA has good drivers, particularly in the high-horsepower class. You don't see the, the 250TRs and GTOs anymore, unfortunately. They're just worth too much money now. I'll still bring my Ferrari, though. It's about having a good time and letting people enjoy the car on the move, the way it was meant to be seen, instead of as a static display somewhere. I uh, was thinking about bringing a 1994 Neon and letting people enjoy that, I offered by way of response. Malcolm's eyes crinkle, and I think about a statement on the VSCCA website. We choose to stay firmly rooted in those earlier days when driving sports cars was still a romantic adventure, it says. We have come for the romance. Which makes the definition of vintage car a vintage car even simpler, albeit more difficult to precisely define than the six-year rule at the 1978 Kendall Vintage Grand Prix. A proper vintage car has to offer a bit of romance. Yet I continue to hold out hope that my 1994 Neon ACR will someday find a place among the Corvettes and Ferraris and sports racers. Shouldn't that be worth something to the men and women who guard the gates of historic racing? After all, what could be more romantic than blind devotion to a lost cause? I have to say, that was a really interesting article. And while I don't think the neon's going to permeate those spaces anytime soon, because those people want to go back to the big... Like, no one... Very, very few people liked the American auto industry in the 80s, right? 
And while it did get a lot better in the 90s, certainly by comparison, the neon is not what those people are after. They want their big V8s, their sexy sports sports cars, and open, I say open wheelers, but some open wheelers, their Can-Am style McLarens. That's what they want because those cars, they may not drive as well. They may not be as fast as the neon, but they still drive fairly well for an old race car and they look the part and they sound the part. That's what they want because the people who drive those cars, and I'm not bashing on them, I'm just making a statement. The people who drive those older vintage cars, and I've been to those events, are the same kind of people that complain about Formula One not having V10s anymore and missing that sound. And so you're not convincing those people. I don't think you'd have an easy time of it anyway. Convincing those people to allow a neon in the sport because the neon is kind of the very antithesis of the cars they want to drive, of the race cars they want to have, even if it fits their six-year rule. Even if it is by now technically a vintage car, at the very least a classic car, that's not what they want to see because a Neon is not a 63 Corvette. It's not a C2 Corvette race car. It's not a C3 Corvette race car. That's And it's the sad truth. And don't get me wrong. I like the first gen Neon and I love Neon ACRs, but it's not a Viper. It's not a Corvette. It's not, it, hell, it's not even a C4. It's not even a C4 Corvette. And so that's why I really don't think it's going to permeate those spaces because the reality is that car looks nothing like it looks nothing like those other ones. And I suppose you could make the argument that, yeah, there wouldn't be there wouldn't be that many Neon ACRs showing up to those events, though. So what's one Neon ACR in a field of Formula Fords, old Formula Fords, Formula VWs, McLarens, you know, Can-Am McLarens, Porsche 911 RSRs, and the like? But my argument, I guess my argument would be it would look out of place. Even if by by age it should it should be in that field it looks completely out of place just entirely if america was britain and had its car culture you might be able to convince some quote-unquote of the old guard to allow a neon acr to show up in a race like that because britain has a greater history of cars like the neon acr your escort cars worth your uh what was it the i guess the escort rs you're more people's enthusiast cars like that they have, I think they have a fonder view of those cars. A Sierra Cosworth is a great example. But America, we didn't have that many cars of that type. We didn't have that many neon ACRs, Cobalt, Cobalt SSs, or uh, what would it be, Cavalier SSs, or anything like that. We didn't have hot hatch type cars as much as Europe did, as much as Britain did with your Vauxhall Corsa uh, what was it, SI, GSI, whatever, okay? And so the appreciation for a car like an older Vauxhall Corsa, that, but the sporty version, or a Neon ACR, just isn't there. That, that appreciation isn't there because they only see, I think most people of maybe R&VR, the SVRA type, they only see, oh, that's a, that's a crummy little Neon. That's an Econobox, right? Like, why would we want that in our sea of beautiful Ford Mustang GT350s uh, what would it be, Camaro Z28, Pontiac Firebirds of some description and, and the like, because that that to them is the golden age of performance cars. And maybe now with Hellcats and Mustang GT500s, it's like their appreciation of performance cars pretty much, it, it only goes as, I say it only goes as low, but it doesn't, it doesn't extend to neon ACR level because that I suppose is not really a true performance car to them. It's not a Corvette. It's not a Camaro. It's not a Mini even because that, you know, a Mini is a weird example uh, or is a weird exception because that's a normal car. 
technically, that's exactly that's a vintage neon ACR for the purposes of this argument. Yet I've seen old minis show up at our, our equivalent of a vintage racing association, the RMVR, the Rocky Mountain Vintage Racing Association. We've had cars like that show up. So why why wouldn't you allow a neon? Well, arguably, it's too modern. Visually, it looks too new compared to even an Austin Mini. And I think the Mini has maybe, at least in America, perhaps begrudgingly gotten gotten some kind of appreciation because of how well it handles, because of its racing pedigree. Whereas people don't know about the racing pedigree of the Neon nearly as much as they know about the racing pedigree of the original Mini. They don't, because I think they might be, they're likely still tainted from that head gasket problems that original Neons had. That when they see a neon, that's all they see. Even if it's an ACR, they don't realize, no, the ACR has some real pedigree behind it. Some real racing pedigree behind it. But then they'll be fine with having carburetor problems with their Camaros or car- carburetor problems with their Minis or some fueling issues with their Lotus. It's like they think of the neon as a little crappy econo box that had head gasket problems, but they're perfectly fine with having carburetion or fueling problems in their vintage race cars. I mean, that's a little bit of hypocrisy. I would have to say, I mean, that's, I call, I tell it like I see it, but I think the ultimate, really the ultimate problem of why a neon will never show up or will, it'll take a long time for a neon ACR to show up in those spaces is because that car does not look like all the other cars in a vintage racing association. It doesn't look like a Corvette. It doesn't look like hell, a Challenger TA or an AAR Cuda. It doesn't look like any of those cars. It doesn't have a V8 and that appreciation for smaller but still plucky little performance cars, that, that's not an appreciation that we have in America the same way that Britain does, save for the Mini Cooper and, and, maybe, Mo, and uh, maybe Lotuses. But certainly, but, you know, God forbid a neon. But anyway, what do you guys think? Do you think a neon will ever show up? What, do you, what did you think of the article? Let me know in the comments below. If you enjoyed this podcast, so please make sure to like, comment, like, comment, and follow the podcast. Make sure to share it. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, please like, comment, share, and consider subscribing. And if you do subscribe, thank you very much. I really, really appreciate it. Please make sure you hit the little notification bell and then all notifications that way you're notified every time I upload. If you want to listen to this podcast on the road, but you don't happen to want the Podbean mobile app, hey, not a problem. Boot up wherever you get your podcast. Type in Cody's Car Conundrum and then choose the episode you want to listen to. I will see you all next time. Before we end, I want to inform you all that you can now monetarily support this podcast and indeed the entirety of Cody's Car Conundrum with Kofi. Uh, well, it might be coffee, but it's spelled K-O-F-I, and that's weird, so I say it Kofi. In any case, Kofi is an alternative to Patreon where, beautifully and as God intended, you, the supporters, don't have to pay a fee, like on Patreon, to support my work. So if you like what I do and want to see me cover, slash talk about, slash make a video regarding something specific, or want me to branch out into other areas of car culture, then head on over to ko-fi.com forward slash Cody's Car Conundrum, where you can make a minimum donation of $5 towards me and the brand. In return, you'll be helping me afford new equipment, afford upgrades to my existing tools, you'll receive polls asking what topic you want me to dive into next, You'll get to see voted and non-voted content before public release, various forms of recognition for your support, and the ability to vote on merch designs you'd like to see on the Teespring store. And now it's time to close. You've just listened to me probably ramble about some cars if I'm being honest. If you've enjoyed me passionately talking about lumps of metal on wheels, then why don't you follow me on Twitter at Cody Carr, C-O-N-U-N-D-R-M, or check out my website, www.codyscarconundrum.com, for articles and other car-related content. 
If you have any questions or would like to become a sponsor, send an email to drtaffy777 at gmail.com and put sponsor in the subject line. Make sure to follow me here or any other platform so you don't miss out on more full throttle content. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all in the next episode.